I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to episode 151 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today it's time for another Random Clippings mini-episode. Sometimes, as I'm searching through old newspapers for stories, I come across things that are interesting to me. They might be funny, or heartwarming, or shocking, or even sad. But they aren't long enough, or don't fall on famous dates, so I can't really use them as weekly additional history stories. So, I share them on these mini-episodes. And with that, let's get started with a few random clippings. Today's first story comes from the Advocate Messenger out of Danville, Kentucky. The date of this article is January 18, 1967, and the headline says, Good Luck Coin Turns Out More Bad Than Good Luck. It was a pretty intriguing headline, so of course I read it. This story is about a man named Harry D. Brettschneider, or actually it could be a boy, I guess. No age is actually given. Anyway, years before the article was written, Harry's grandfather gave him an old coin and told him that it was a good luck coin. Harry loved the idea of that and treasured the coin from his grandfather. The coin was a cent coin dated from 1793, so it was very old. One day, Harry decided he wanted to have the coin properly identified, so he sent it off to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., the next thing he knew, the Louisville Secret Service was on his doorstep, accusing him of running a counterfeiting business. They told him that his coin had been confiscated, and the only way he was getting it back was if it was in melted-down form. Well, as you can imagine, Harry was very upset. He loved that coin, and it had great sentimental value to him. It didn't bother him that it wasn't the real thing. So, he did what anyone would do and he decided to write a letter to the President of the United States. At that time, it was Lyndon B. Johnson. And nothing came of that. The President did not step in to save the coin. But Harry didn't let that stop him. Next, he started writing to his congressmen, asking for them to step in and save his precious good luck coin. That time, his persistence did pay off, and he got a call from a man named Robert Jordan, who worked in the office of the assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury for Enforcement. Now, if you've ever watched the TV show The Office, I hope that job title made you laugh. Anyway, Robert Jordan apologized to Harry and said that he agreed that the matter was ridiculous, but to please stop writing to the President of the United States about it. Harry said, quote, I think a principle is involved here. I just don't like being shoved around over something so insignificant to the government as a replica of an old penny. There was no word on whether or not Harry ever saw his good luck coin again. For my next random clipping story, I'm taking a little article from the Herald Sun out of Durham, North Carolina. This was dated just a few years earlier than the last story and was printed on July 26, 1960. The headline says, Humans add water and plugs up well. 
Now, I'll admit that the headline isn't very exciting, but the story was probably pretty exciting while it was happening. This is a story about an animal rescue. A man named Mr. Gant had a horse named Buck, and one day, Buck managed to kick the cover off of the family well. I'm guessing the well was located in a pasture. And then somehow, Buck didn't notice the hole while he was grazing, and managed to back himself up and down into the hole of the well, falling nearly 12 feet down and landing with a splash. The problem was, nobody was around to see what happened to poor Buck. I'm sure he was making a lot of noise, as he didn't know what was happening, and he managed to get the attention of a dog, who started barking and barking and barking until Mr. Gant came out to see what was wrong, and he found Buck in the well. Mr. Gant didn't waste any time and quickly called for help. He got a tow truck out to the farm, and he got a fireman's rescue unit to come out too. They quickly went to work to get Buck out of his predicament, and tossed in rope after rope, but every time they did that, the ropes would just slip right off as soon as they started tugging and pulling on the horse. According to the article, nobody could remember whose idea it was, but someone decided to call for a water supply truck. And instead of getting rid of the water in the well, the truck started pouring water in. Buck did not like that and went wild-eyed. I'm sure he thought they were trying to drown him, but no. Instead, He began to rise with the water level, floating right to the top of the well. And all Mr. Gant had to do was give a gentle tug on the rope, and he walked right out. It did take poor Buck quite a while to stop shaking, though. For my next random clipping, I'm taking an article from Our Mountain Home, a newspaper out of Talladega, Alabama. This clipping was printed on June 4th, 1916. This is a very short clipping, but I wanted to include it just to show some of the crazy things that got printed in the newspaper back in the day. In this case, the article says that a woman in Macon was going through her husband's coat pockets one day before sending it off to the cleaner because he'd gotten it dirty somehow. And the woman came across a receipt for a florist in Jacksonville. The receipt showed that he had purchased four roses, but she'd never received any. And besides that, she knew he could get them cheaper at the florist back home. The woman confided in her best friend that she had complete confidence in her husband, but that the receipt gave her quite a jolt, and she didn't know if she could feel easy until she knew where the flowers had been sent. I can only imagine that it was this best friend and confidant that spilled the whole story to the newspaper. At least, it didn't name names. But yes, the woman might want to have a talk with her husband. The next story comes from the Times-Herald out of Port Huron, Michigan. And the date is April 26, 1986. The article said that the Maryland Historical Society had lost something important, and they were trying to find it. Apparently, many years earlier... Someone had given them a mysterious letter and left strict instructions that the letter not be opened until after the Duke and Duchess of Windsor had both died. The article said that the letter had been given to them 10 years earlier, but I think they were just estimating because the Duke had already been dead for 14 years at that point. Anyway, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor had also been known 
as King Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson, a former socialite from Baltimore, Maryland. I told the story of Edward abdicating his throne after just one year as king so that he could marry the divorced Wallace Simpson in the episode I did about the Hindenburg disaster. Well, just a couple of days before this article was printed, Wallace died in Paris at the age of 89. With both the Duke and the Duchess deceased, the mysterious letter could finally be opened, except nobody could find it. They all remembered that it had carefully been set aside for safekeeping, but where that place was, nobody knew. They tried to reach out and contact the former director of the Maryland Historical Society, the one who had been in charge when the letter was received, but so far that person wasn't returning their phone calls. Friends, I tried, but I could not find an answer to whether or not the mysterious letter was ever found, which makes it even more curious. Was it found, but not mentioned again because it didn't contain anything interesting? Or was it found but destroyed because of what it contained? Was there a cover-up? And maybe the letter is still missing all these years later. We'll probably never know. Okay, this next story comes from the Messenger Inquirer out of Owensboro, Kentucky. It's dated March 13, 1928. And the headline says, Letcher Officer Ambushed, Shot. This article is so short that I'm just going to read you the entire thing. It says, Green Hall, Constable of Thornton Creek near Baston, Letcher County, was ambushed last night as he stepped to the door of his home and was wounded three times. It is thought he will recover. The identity of the attackers has not been learned. One bullet passed through Hall's hip, one through his legs, and the third through his back. Bloodhounds have been brought from Lexington in an attempt to trail the assailants. Last night's attack marks the tenth time Hall has been the target for bullets. Wait, what? The article is going along telling how a constable got shot, which wasn't super uncommon back in 1928, and then suddenly, in the very last line, tells us that it's the tenth time he's been shot? Obviously, there was more to the story than that, so I started searching. I found that Constable Hall had also been shot in January of 1928, just two months earlier. That time he'd been walking along some railroad tracks when someone tried to kill him. He was shot multiple times during that incident, too. That January article said he'd also been shot a couple of months before that, but I couldn't find any record of that in the newspapers. To me, this seems like it should have been a big story, but every article I found was very, very short. Greenhall did recover from his wounds, but since police didn't know who had been trying so hard to kill him, the last time I saw him mentioned in the newspapers was a notice of just a couple of lines saying that, due to the attempts on his life, he was packing up and moving away. Probably a smart choice. They never did find out who was behind the attacks. And honestly, it didn't seem like anybody really cared. There was definitely more to that story than was being printed back in 1928. Okay, now we're going to jump back 20 years earlier than our last random clipping. This one comes from the Montgomery Times out of Alabama and is dated August 20th, 1908. The headline says, 
lineman unconscious at top of telephone pole. On that day, a man named Tom Samuel went to work like he did every day. He worked for the Southern Bell Telephone Company. When he got to work, he and another man were sent out to Oak Park to work on some telephone line that ran through that section of town. Tom climbed up a telephone pole near a home, just like he'd probably done many times before, and then his partner, working on the ground below, saw Tom suddenly jerk back from the pole and fall. Luckily, Tom had a safety strap tied around him, and that prevented him from falling all the way to the ground. Instead, it left the unconscious Tom, who had been zapped by a lot of electricity, swinging out in a perilous way. His partner quickly scaled the telephone pole to bring Tom back down, but he couldn't reach him. To his partner, it looked like Tom was dead. It didn't take long for people to come out of their homes to see what was happening, and a large crowd quickly formed. Some, trying to be helpful, ran to their homes and came back with ladders, but none of them were tall enough to reach Tom, who was still swinging back and forth by the safety rope. It's unclear if one of the telephone wires was still touching Tom or what exactly was happening, but according to the article, there were, quote, hundreds of bolts of electricity running through and burning his body. Tom's co-worker did manage to cut the line that was sending the electricity through his body eventually, but Tom still swayed back and forth. When the onlookers couldn't solve the problem on their own, they called the fire department and they had a ladder tall enough to get Tom down. The most interesting part of all is that Tom suddenly regained consciousness as they were bringing him down. And despite burns on his hands and his shoulder, he didn't seem to be seriously injured, mostly just dazed. He had been swinging unconscious for 30 minutes. I wonder if he was back at work the next day, or if he took some deserved time off. This next random clipping is probably the shortest one yet, but it was such a baffling story that I decided to include it. The article was printed in the Akron Beacon Journal in Akron, Ohio on May 20th, 1932. The headline says, Mob Captures Deer Taking City Stroll. Now, I grew up on a farm, and we did sometimes have stray animals wander through. I didn't see a lot of deer, but we did see moose and other animals. Where my husband grew up, not a day went by that he didn't see deer in the middle of town, at his house, at the schools, at the parks. They're as common as flies there. But a deer sighting in Altadena, California, where this story took place, must have been pretty rare, because when someone saw a deer, a young buck to be more descriptive, walking down the street in Altadena, minding its own business, the person was so shocked that he started following it. He was soon joined by other men and boys. And before anyone realized what was happening, there was a mob of a hundred people chasing the poor deer down the street. They followed the animal until it stumbled while trying to jump over a ditch, and the mob was able to jump on it and capture it. They then put it in a crate to ship off to Catalina Island and patted themselves on the back for a job well done. For this country girl, this particular random clipping is very bizarre. The next random clipping is just as short as many of the others today, but it made me laugh. 
The article comes from the Baltimore Sun out of Maryland and was printed on November 2, 1941. The headline says, Real Tin Can Tourist Always Gets a Lift. The article is nothing more than a large picture with an extra-long caption below it. Apparently, a man named Tommy Graham, who was 21 years old and from Salisbury, Maryland, had figured out an ingenious way to travel the country for free. So far, he'd managed to visit 22 different states without spending a dime on his transportation. How'd he do it? Well, it came down to what he was carrying in his hand. It was an old tin gasoline container. Except that's not really what it was. It was actually his suitcase designed to look like an old gasoline container. People driving by would see him standing on the side of the road with his thumb out, holding the can, and assume that he had been stranded when his car ran out of gas. So they'd quickly pull over to come to his rescue. And that's how he traveled the country. Pretty smart, if you ask me. For my next random clipping, I'm going clear back to the 1700s, at the time of the birth of this nation. This article was printed in the Pennsylvania Gazette on July 30, 1776. The headline says, $3 reward. And it shows how perilous times were for some of the indentured servants from back during that time. I'm going to read you the entire article, and I'll note that this is another article where the S sound is replaced by an F, as in Frank. It says, Run away from the subscriber living in Radnor Township, Chester County, on the 12th of this instant, July, an Irish indentured servant maid named Catherine Casey, a chunky, fat lump, broad-faced, a down look, her hair cut short round her head, about five foot two inches high, had on, when she went away, a striped linsey short gown and petticoat of black and white color. Whoever takes up and secures the above-described maid shall have the above reward, and reasonable charges, paid by Mr. Ogden and the Middle Ferry, or by James Hunter, N.B. It is judged she is lurking about the barracks of Philadelphia, or somewhere about town. I checked historical records to see if Catherine Casey ever showed up, and although I found a record showing that she had immigrated to Philadelphia the same year she ran away, I couldn't find much else. I did find a record of a Catherine Casey in Chester County, Pennsylvania, being admitted to a poorhouse, but the year of 1868 would have put her as a very, very, very old woman, so it couldn't have been her. But the fact that the poor woman's employer described her as a chunky, fat lump makes me really, really hope that poor Catherine Casey got away from him and never had to go back. Okay, I think this random clipping will be the last one I share today. But don't worry, I've got a lot of them, so I'm sure I'll be sharing more in a future episode. This last article comes from the Kingsport Times News out of Kingsport, Tennessee, and it was printed on June 25th, 1950. This article isn't funny or shocking or anything like that, but I like it because it had some great wisdom to live by. The headline says, Happiest time of life can be any time, Miss Dix declares. And it is, of course, one of the famous Dorothy Dix's columns that were printed in many newspapers all over the country.
She said, quote, I think we make no greater mistake than in painting youth as the supreme joy time of life. This not only makes the young feel that they must squeeze into it every possible amusement and excitement because their time of enjoyment is short, but it causes so many older people to cling piteously and hopelessly to a youth that is already gone because they feel that beyond that, life is nothing but a barren waste with no hope, no pleasure in it. As a matter of fact, no one can say with certainty which is the happiest time of life. It shifts with the individual. There are those who have had golden youths and leaden old ages, while others have had hard and bitter youths and only found how sweet the wine of life can be as they drained the last drop in the cup. Ms. Dix goes on to tell about the good things that come with all of the ages of life, and I'd have to agree. I think we should all remember and try to live life to the fullest, no matter what stage we're in. Friends, thanks for joining me for this sixth Random Clippings episode. Sometimes it's fun to take just a tiny glimpse into what life was like in times other than our own. Join me again this coming Monday for a new full-size episode. I've covered a lot of things about war since I've started this podcast, but there's one I have not covered yet, and I think it's time. Talk to you later.